My name is Spencer. If I haven't met you before, I'm going to do the scripture reading this morning. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3. If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetedness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Hey, well, let's uh, go to God's Word in Romans chapter 5. Um, I will be reading from the NASB, the uh, truly inspired Bible. <laughs> uh, NASB, um, if you have ESV, there's no problem with that. You'll be saved. Um, no, just uh, Romans chapter 5, and follow me as I read through verses 1 through verse 11. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll see just how justification plays out and the uh, uh, salvation uh, plan of God for humanity. This is the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith... We have peace with God.
through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. And perseverance, proven character. And proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death, through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. This is God's word that has been read before you this morning. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for justifying us in Christ. We have been declared to be righteous, not on our own basis, but on the death and resurrection of Christ. What a beautiful gift that is. Your grace through faith in your Son. May we live a life devoted to serving him, to worshiping him, and to rejoicing in, in his sacrifice. Amen. It's fascinating and a blessing for me to see new true believers, those who have been again, born again of the Spirit, enthusiastically express their joy. It's even worthy of holy envy, one might say. That's because their eyes have been opened, and now they have found true delight in their Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. They have tasted the goodness of the Lord. They are enamored with the understanding of being born again into a, a family of regenerated sinners, saved by grace through faith, who likewise enjoy fellowship with the triune God. Yet, it's also, at the same time, saddening to see some older Christians who have lost their joy. And in fact, they find themselves tempted to hide their beliefs in the presence of unbelievers. These find no motivation whatsoever to delight in the Lord. It has become a religious routine for them to simply give, give thanks for the, who, for the food they have before them. To pray for a blessed day. To entrust their kids in the protective umbrella of God. To go to church on Sundays and, and even more. Yet, if you were to follow these people for a week, you'd most likely see that their joy is not in the Lord, but in the things of this world. They will pray, yes, but it's just a habit because they have lost the joy that comes with being saved. They've forgotten the insuperable gift of being justified by God in Christ. Is it perhaps that the afflictions encountered in life have cornered them into this estate? Maybe the pleasures of this world have found place in their hearts once again, and somehow they find themselves desiring the perishable and defiled pleasures of this world more than the beauty and majesty of their Savior? The answer only God knows for certain. Yet someone may have found himself or herself in a similar situation at some point. Or perhaps this is true of you today. You've lost your joy in Christ. 
Therefore, whether you are experiencing a dry season in your walk or not, I know that we all need a reminder once in a while. No, in fact, we need it daily. We need to remind ourselves daily of the absolute truth that Christ is superior to all the pleasures of the world. We must make that our motto as we face and encounter the afflictions in the world. Christ is superior to all the pleasures of the world. Yes, even those that you can't seem to let go of. And part of the reason why perhaps you think you can't let go of them is because you fail to acknowledge the result of these practices is death. And even more, it calls for the full wrath of God, the omnipotent God upon yourself. And we make very, li very little of justification. We don't rejoice in our salvation. John Murray, a theologian in the 1900s, rightly said, If we are to appreciate that which is central in the gospel, that is justification, if the jubilee trumpet is to find its echo again in our hearts, our thinking must be revolutionized by the realism of the wrath of God, of the reality and gravity of our guilt, and of the divine condemnation. It is then and only then that our thinking and feeling will be rehabilitated to under, an understanding of God's grace in the justification of the godly. Our main point tonight, today, is rejoice in Christ and exalt Christ for his perfect work in your life. We're talking about justification, and that brings both reasons to rejoice and exalt Christ. Reasons to rejoice and exalt Christ. This morning, we will see four reasons found in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to exalt Christ and rejoice while doing it. Four reasons. Number one, Jesus justifies you by faith. Number two, Jesus gives you peace. Number three, Jesus gives you assurance. And lastly, number four, Jesus gives you reasons to rejoice. Again, we'll see four reasons why or how to rejoice and exalt Christ. Number one, Jesus justifies you by faith. The text reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith. Well, what is justification and what does it mean that we are justified by faith? Well, Paul is not assuming anything. He's not hoping that the reader will define terms in his own. Rather, if you follow his argument from chapter 5, you could see that he built an argument that leads to the sole idea that God is the author of justification and the only one who imparts it. Just in case you haven't had the chance to read through Romans, go with me to chapter 1. And let's follow that argument that Paul makes. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous, what? The righteous one will live by faith. This justification for salvation, as it is contained in the message of the gospel, can only be by faith. And praise to God that it is. For in the following verses, 18 through 32, Paul says that men have unrighteously suppressed the truth of God and that God responds with wrath from heaven. And he does so rightfully. Quote, verse 21, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And just below that, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands, and there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Chapter 3, verses 10 and 12, and verse 17. This means that if it was up to us, up to our works, up to our own goodness, we'd all be condemned under the penalty of sin. If God had not acted on our behalf and made salvation available to us freely by faith in His Son, we'd be the recipients of His wrath in the day of the Lord, Judgment Day. Why? Well, because as Paul points out, we would have not honored God or sought after His glory or done good or feared Him, thus rightly we would deserve His wrath. And this is where justification comes in, and it's so important to understand this. Paul demonstrates that we are all men, women, young, old, born into a Christian family, born into an atheist family. It doesn't matter. We are all naturally, prior to being in Christ, under condemnation and simply waiting for the wrath of God to come upon us. Yet by faith in Christ and because of His death and resurrection, we are saved. We are justified. See, justification doesn't mean it doesn't mean that we are made good or that we are sinless. Justification is forensic. It has to do with the legal declaration. As the judge, judge, God himself, declares the sinner to be righteous, based not on that person but on someone else. That is Christ, his death and resurrection to him who believes. Who says it? God says it. Follow me to Romans chapter 8, and I know we're going back and forth, but just bear with me. Romans chapter 8, verse 33 and 34. Listen to this. This is an accusation. This is like a, like a judgment date. Who will bring a charge against God elect, asks Paul. God is the one who what? Justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, Rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, or interceded for us. Romans 8, 33 and 34. Paul says that God justifies, that, that is, he declares someone to be righteous based on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Imagine, as it were, if you were being charged in a courtroom. You had a debt to pay. Someone comes along, pays your fine. The judge, the judge can lawfully say to you, you're free to go. Someone has paid your fine. Because Christ paid your fine, God can legally declare you to be righteous. This is, my brothers and sisters, the gift from God that must be received by faith alone in Christ's death and resurrection alone and in what he said of himself to be the true God, the Savior of sinners. And because the sinner is declared to be righteous, Paul therefore asks in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Well, let's go back to chapter 5, verse 1. This is simply the argument that Paul is making that we are justified by faith. And listen to this again. Therefore, having been justified by faith, notice the conjunction, therefore, he initiates this thought, connecting it to the thought of the previous verses which explain why Paul says, having been justified by faith. Go back to me, with me to chapter 4, verses 23 to 25, and notice the context. Verse 23 to 25 says, Now, not for his sake 
only was it written that it was credited to him, that is Abraham. But for whose sake? Our sake also. To whom it will be credited? As those who believe in him, that is Jesus, God, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Notice that in both passages, both in chapter 8 and chapter 4, it's Jesus' death and resurrection by faith in him that we are declared to be righteous, that we are justified. Isn't that, it, it, it isn't the result of our good works or good behavior. Likewise, we don't justify ourselves. Neither is justification our apology towards God. Oh, I'm so sorry, God. No. It's not the effect in us of a process of self-excusation. I didn't mean to do it. It's the result of the righteous punishment because His holiness was transgressed by the sin of men, which was executed by the Father upon the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who in the place of man took upon Himself the full wrath of the sinner, of the Father, sorry, appeasing it forever in our place. As the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 3.16, For Christ also died once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Those, friends, brothers, sisters, those are great news. Those are wonderful news. That's the gospel. Jesus took our place, our rightful place. We could have never earned this. Only by his love and mercy, by grace, we receive this. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 says, He emptied himself, taking the form of a bond servant, and being made in the likeness of man. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and death on a cross. Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus for his undeserved yet wonderful and merciful act of love. We are justified only by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those who repent in faith and turn from their sin by placing their trust in him, calling upon his name, will be saved, says Romans 10. This is the wonderful news of the gospel which is announced to you today. Repent and be reconciled to God, cry out all Christians. Be justified by the only means, only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And justification, as seen here in verse 1, is irrevocable. It can't be taken away. Please notice that Paul uses a perfect tense participle to indicate God's justifying declaration. He says, having been justified. That's a perfect participle. That is, God as a sovereign and supreme above all, the righteous judge, has pronounced a legal declaration that no one can revoke. He has declared those who repent by faith in His Son to be righteous, and no one can say otherwise. His judge, or whatever, I'm not sure what that is called, judicial hammer? What's, is that what it's called? Has been put down and has been declared based on a once-in-a-lifetime event the crucifixion, death of Christ, and His resurrection. Hence, Romans 8.34, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Think about it for a second. No matter what, 
If you have been brought near to God, and by faith you have trusted in Christ, in His atoning sacrifice, you have been declared righteous. And this is not based on your record. Who you were or what you have done will not be held against you because Christ's righteousness clothes you. His blood, which was shed on the cross, has paid it all. You are loved by the Father in the Son. Does this thought not provoke joy in your heart? Does it not make you want to worship Him who died and suffered in your place? Is this not enough reason for you to live a life in gratitude to please Him? Don't leave this morning without thanking Him for His sacrifice. For you have been declared righteous outside of yourself, despite of your shortcomings, sins, and faults. In the doctrine of justification by faith, we are reminded of the reasons to exalt Christ, to obey Christ, and to rejoice in Christ. No one, if you have been born again, will be able to accuse you or bring a charge against you because you stand secure in Christ. All because of Christ. Worship Christ. Exalt Christ. Live for Him. First reason to exalt Christ and rejoice is simply Jesus justifies you. Jesus justifies you. Now we will see the second reason to exalt Christ. And for you to rejoice, the text reads, follow me again, verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, reason number two, Jesus gives you peace. As we think about peace, we can and most likely will come up with different understandings of what this may mean, that Jesus gives you peace. However, this peace is completely related to justification. It is a result of being justified. It's an objective peace. It's a peace that results from knowing that you have been justified. Think about this. Let's go back just a little bit. I know, are oh, you dragging this too much, Pastor? Just bear with me. You and I had a huge debt. A debt so great that we would, had never been able to pay it. Not just that, but also think about the implications we owed this great debt to the most powerful being alive ever, forever. One who doesn't miss a single infraction we commit. There's nothing hidden from him. One who can't forget any details. Not the slightest one of them, no matter how tiny. That, my brothers and sisters, friends, it's a ter terrible thought. It's it's reason enough to never want to die. I can see why so many people are trying their best to lengthen their days on, on earth. I mean, who wouldn't, right? What a horrible thought, thought to know that after death awaits you a trial in which you will be sentenced to the full wrath of God, the Almighty God, for an eternity without mercy. His full wrath upon your life. That should keep you up all night. That should take away your peace. That is why we need mercy and grace, don't we? Well, if you still think that somehow you can pay God back with works, good works, 
or being morally good or zealous or guarding the law or Sabbaths or feasts. Hear this. Psalm 49, verse 7 through 9 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. Psalm 49, verses 7 through 9. See, God says that no one can redeem another, much less redeem your own self. Therefore, this causes the one who is without Christ to not just worry about the future, but to fear the future, namely that which comes after death, punishment. This fear is due to being in a state of enmity towards God. But hear this, church, hear this. Because we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Because of whom? Because of Jesus Christ. Therefore, exalt and rejoice Jesus in Jesus Christ. So what kind of peace is this? It is the peace of knowing that we are in a good standing before Almighty God through Jesus Christ. As verse 9 says, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. It is the peace of knowing that we are no longer subject to His wrath. Of course, this will lead to subjective internal peace, and Paul will go on to develop this in the latter verses, namely verse 10. We have seen that one, Jesus justifies you, two, Jesus gives you peace, and now let us see number three, Jesus gives you assurance. Let's read the text. Verse 2 says, through whom, that is Jesus, also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. Jesus gives you assurance. Here Paul unfolds another reason to exalt Christ and for us to rejoice. He says that through Christ, we are eternally secured. Notice that our translation reads, we have obtained and we stand. Both are indicative verbs in the perfect tense, which highlight an aspect of language and time. We can understand them as something that has happened in the past with ongoing effects to the future. Therefore, Paul is signaling an introduction and standing that sees to the future. How far do you think this looks to? How far do you think it reaches? Church, this looks to the day when we will be united finally to Christ in body and spirit. This is an eternally secured introduction and standing. Because we have been introduced by faith and are standing on Him, on His perfect work and of redemption. As Americans, we are used to buying guarantees whenever we purchase a vehicle, an appliance, electronics, anything. In fact, I can't forget who it was, but I'm sure at one point, I'm not sure if that's still the case, but at one point there was a car manufacturer that offered the best powertrain warranty. That is 10,000 miles or 10 years. Man, that's amazing. That's a great warranty. You could have driven that car or truck confidently, knowing that if it needed to be fixed because it broke down, they would take care of it. But what would happen 10 years after that? Or when the 10,000 miles would hit the odometer? No mas, se acabo. No more warranty. Well, this introduction and standing we have has no expiration date. It is supremely perfect. This is because of Christ. Because His resurrection is the proof of it. His death was the payment, and now he seats at the right hand of the Father. 
He will keep you till the end. He will guard you to the end. He will be with you till the end. You don't have to fear that you may lose your salvation. You'd already lost it if it was up to you. But glory be to God that we are secured because of Christ. That is what Paul meant when he said, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. Romans 8, 35, 37 and 39. Hallelujah, brothers and sisters. We are secured in Christ, and nothing can separate us from Him. Is this not a reason to exalt Him? Is this not a reason to rejoice? We've seen three reasons so far to exalt Christ. Jesus justifies you. Jesus gives you peace. Jesus gives you assurance. Now let us finish the text and see the fourth reason to exalt Christ. Number four, Jesus gives you reasons to rejoice. This may sound a bit redundant, but bear with me on this one, okay? This is simply Paul's argument. Notice that in the following verses, Paul uses the word from the Greek, kaukalmai, which is translated in NASB as exalt. Verse 2, we exalt in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, we exalt in our tribulations. Verse 11, we exalt in God. Here then is a, separate, is a repeated theme of exalting, which literally means to boast, as the NIV also translated it. I also like the way the ESV, as many of you would see it here, and the new NASB translated, the ESB says, we rejoice. But listen to the new NASB. It translates this as, we celebrate. Ain't that something cool? We celebrate. Thus, this list is a list of reasons to celebrate. Therefore, Jesus gives you reasons to rejoice, to celebrate. This will be quite fast as it is a cause and effect passage. First, Paul, the first thing Paul says is, rejoice in the glory of God. This is interesting because if you've been around for years, for a short period of time, you probably know that famous evangelistic verse we always throw around, for all have sinned, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The reality is that not a single human can reach the glory of God. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And the reason is that we've all fallen short. There is not a single hair of chance to reach the glory of God for the one without Christ. But the one who has been justified by faith can make a feast, can celebrate, can rejoice, knowing that he or she will reach the glory of God. This is the motive for our Sunday gatherings, isn't it? We celebrate Jesus. We celebrate his death and his resurrection. We celebrate our standing before God through Jesus Christ. We celebrate knowing that we will reach the glory of God. But we shouldn't just wait until Sunday to worship him and rejoice and celebrate him we should rejoice in the glory of god daily in life and in death paul is a great example of this truth of this mentality he learned to live his life in prosperity and in poverty to the glory of christ he rejoiced in knowing he would reach the glory of god in fact he lived saying this philippians 1:21 for to me to live is christ and to die is gain. Why do you think he thought of death as a gain? Because he knew what awaited him once he departed to this world. And he knew his life here was with the purpose 
to rejoice, to exalt in Christ, and to proclaim Him. To simply imagine what it would be like on that day when we will be before God in His glory and to be able to enjoy Him forever. It's mesmerizing and should prompt us to joy. To hear the words from our Lord and Master on that day, well done, good and faithful slave, enter into the joy of your Master. What beautiful words those are. Why will we be able to hear those words and enjoy Him forever? Because Christ. Because Christ. What was once unattainable to you because of your sin, Christ has made possible and tells you to rejoice in it, to boast, to feel proud because of Christ's work. He has done away with that which made you fall short of the glory of God. Rejoice in the glory of God, brothers and sisters. Paul continues on and says, verse 3, rejoice in tribulations. Wait, what? What do you mean, Paul? We should celebrate in our tribulations? Are you serious? Have you ever experienced tribulation yourself, Paul? Do you even know what that is? How can you say that? How heartless, Paul? Of course, you know that Paul suffered, and he suffered greatly. In fact, it was prophesied before he went into service that he would suffer for Christ's sake. Well, where, where is that, Pastor? I, I don't know. Well, follow me to Acts chapter 9, verses 14 through 15. Or simply listen to this. But the Lord said to him, God, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For, here's the purpose, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So yes, Paul is aware of how awful tribulations are. Yet, grounded on the basis that the believer is justified by faith in Christ, he says we should rejoice in tribulations. That should shift our thinking. The believer's joy is not simply something they hope to experience in the future, but a present reality in, even in times of trials and distress. Their joy is not a stoic determination to make the best out of a bad situation. Christian suffering is a source of joy because its purpose is to build character in the believer. That's Robert Mounts. Why? Well, here's the cause and effect. You ready? Number one, verse three. Because this results in perseverance. That is steadfastness. Why should we rejoice in tribulations? Because this results in perseverance. It's like the person who trains weights. With weights. If you've done it, you know how painful it can be. Especially in the earlier days. You know the feeling. You wake up sore Everything hurts, your arms, your legs, your abs. You find out how stupid it was for you to train so hard. You find out you have muscles where you didn't know you had muscles. How, what does this hurt? Well, I, not too long ago, I decided to try out CrossFit for myself and see just how that worked. And oh boy, oh boy, let's just say that my wife said I was exaggerating a bit too much. I woke up that day and I simply wanted to just run to the ER. Take me to the ER, please, take me to the ER. I, in fact, told my wife, they're going to amputate my arm. It just hurts so much. Just pull it out from my body. But no, maybe she was right. I was simply experiencing the results of putting my body through tribulation, testing its endurance. And of course, the result can be rather good, very beneficial. Though it may be painful, it is good for your body. It produces endurance. So in the same way, 
the end result of tribulations in the life of the believer is rather positive. See, James chapter 1, verse 12 says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. That is what Paul is saying here. Rejoice in tribulations, knowing that God is carrying you through it. Remind yourself of the benefits of having the great shepherd as your personal shepherd. You will make it through. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Even though I walk through what the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So rejoice in tribulations, brothers and sisters, because they produce perseverance. And Paul continues saying that perseverance results as proven character. The New English Bible translates this phrase as endurance brings proof that we have stood the test. Basically, we don't have to wait until we are before God to know if He persevered or not. Instead, listen to how Paul speaks about Timothy. This is Philippians chapter 2, verse 19 through 22. But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. For I have no one else of kindred spirit. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of what? His proven worth, that is character, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Proven character is the experience of coming through a time of testing that ultimately produces hope. Hope for the one who came out of the testing and hope for others around him, knowing that God is truly faithful as seen in this person's life. It is a public demonstration that all Christians can confidently trust in God. That is why Paul speaks of Timothy this way, describing him as one who has persevered. This is an ongoing lifestyle, a life empowered by the Spirit, which can only be possible for those who have been justified and brought into the family of God. If you are in Christ... You will persevere, for it is Him, according to Philippians 2.13, who works in you, both to will and to work for His own good pleasure. And how does this come about? It is, a, it is by living a life without trials. Is that what it is? Is it a life to be lived in a comfortable life? No. It is by tribulations that you will be strengthened, which will result in your aid to persevere. Therefore, the call to rejoice in tribulations is grounded rightly. Because you know that you will persevere. You will see God's mighty hand working in and through you. And that is our hope. Thus, this is why Paul says in verse 5, And hope does not disappoint. And this results in a hope that does not disappoint. Why? Well, the reason is quite simple. Because, verse 5, The love of God has been what? Poured over your heart. And how do we know this is the case? Well, for verse 5 and 6 are two proofs. Here's proof number one. By or through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is what Jesus promised as his parting gift to the church. Listen, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, lives in the believer. He lives in you. And that is a demonstration of God's love poured out in your heart. How so? Well, think about the Old Testament. I'll give you two examples that you know. Exhibit A, Saul, the first king of Israel. He sinned against God and was therefore disqualified by God. 
by removing God's spirit from him. Exhibit B, David, second king of Israel. After David sinned against God by taking Uriah's wife and killing him, he prayed that God would not remove what? His spirit from him. This is a clear distinctive of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Even when we sin, he does not depart from us. He does not leave us. Instead, he leads us to repentance. He convicts us. He sanctifies us. He molds us into the image of his son. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, says Paul in Romans 8, 16. Reason number two, how do we know God's love has been poured over our hearts? While we were still weak and without God, he died for us, verse 6. Knowing that we couldn't help ourselves, as Paul says, we are helpless, Christ died for us. We who didn't care about God, that made us irreverent, impious, ungodly, Christ died for us. This is the second proof that the love of God has been poured over your heart. This magnifies the love of God for you, the incomparable and supreme love of God towards you. How? Well, Paul gives you an argument here. Verse 7. One may die for a just. Say your son or your daughter need a heart transplant. I'm sure without a hesitation, in a heartbeat, you give your heart for your daughter, your son. That is what Paul is saying here. We as humans would die for a person who thought was just. But listen to how God demonstrates his love. Verse 8, but God sent his son to die for the one who deserved to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, we who were put into death, his own son, he died voluntarily for us. That's a huge contrast. It magnifies the love of God. And the result of this, we shall be saved from the wrath of God. So a double assurance for us about not receiving God's wrath is found here. They both have to do with one Christ, his blood, verse 9, and two by his life, verse 10. You should rejoice in that knowledge that Christ did it, that God loves you, that the the Holy Spirit lives in you, that He reconciled you with the Father, meaning that you have been forgiven, that you have been justified, that you are no longer His enemy, but an adopted son or daughter who holds a seed in the table. You were once an enemy of God, and you are now someone who takes a seed at His table. There is absolutely no fear whatsoever to be in the presence of God. If we die, we know that we will be received in heaven and into the presence of God. We will be co-heirs with Christ. Therefore, you can, with the psalmist, say, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is full of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Psalm 16, verse 11. You should rejoice in God. You have an open door to experience Him, to know Him through His Word, to enjoy Him as Father. To know that he is your God. Jesus, after resurrecting, he charged Mary Magdalene to go and tell his disciples the following. Jesus said to her, John 20, verse 17, Go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father, and listen to this, and your Father, and my God, 
and your God. Jesus makes sure that we understand that because he died and rose again. We have been granted by faith an entrance into the holy family of the triune God. How can it be that a sinner be in the presence of the Holy Trinity? Think about it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have enjoyed a perfect relationship towards each other without lacking anything. And yet, now there's a sinner who was lost, who was full of faults, in the midst of this beautiful, holy family. How is this possible? Christ's righteousness. He cleansed us by His blood. To have God as our God is to be certain of victory in this life and in the next. Romans 8.31 What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, what? Who is against us? You should leave, live thanking Him for His grace with a life devoted to worship and obedience, rejoicing in Him, exalting Him. The love of God that has been demonstrated, we have experienced. Only in Jesus Christ, through faith, all of this is true for the one who believes. Only Jesus justifies you by His death and resurrection. Only He can give you true peace. Only He can give you unfailing guarantee of eternal life. Only He gives you biblical reasons to rejoice all of which are reasons to exalt Christ. If you have not believed in Christ, I plead with you, repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Confess your sins to Him who can justify you. Throw yourself upon His mercy. Don't trust in your works or morality. Trust in the perfect work of Christ. He lived a perfect life in obedience to the Father. He went to the cross to pay for your debt. He was buried for three days. And on the third day, he rose from the dead. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for his own. And if you believe in him, if you repent of your sins, and you trust in him, you will be saved. These are reasons to rejoice. These are reasons to exalt Christ. He justifies you by faith, by grace, through faith in him alone. Thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. May it remain in our hearts. May we meditate on these truths that your word tells us. Thank you for giving us a place that we can gather. Thank you for these saints that desire your word. Amen.